All right, I think I'm ready to go. All right, great. Hi. All right, well, let's go ahead and get started with a word of prayer, shall we? Uh, gracious Lord, we thank you for this day of rest. Lord, not only can we put aside our preoccupation with unnecessary earthly concerns, but Lord, we can also turn our eyes to heaven, to where there is true rest, where there's a sea of glass, of peace, before the Prince of Peace. We thank you for your word by which you draw near to us. We thank you for your church in which we are under the protective care and guidance of uh, Jesus, our great shepherd and friend. And we pray that you'd bless us, especially now as we study the government of your church and the work of our General Assembly. We'd remember, Lord, all the general secretaries, all the committee members, all the work that's being done even now to prepare for uh, this coming meeting here in uh, the Seattle area. We ask, Lord, that uh, you would uh, give everyone traveling mercies, and we pray, Lord, that all would be done in a way that honors and glorifies Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, by the way, as I mentioned uh, when I was praying for the General Assembly coming up, we do have a General Assembly here in Seattle. I think it's going to be at SPU uh, in June, summertime. So if any of you are interested in seeing firsthand what happens at an OPC General Assembly, now's your chance. Usually they're in the Midwest, East Coast. So uh, my first General Assembly, what, 15, 16 years ago now? Uh, was in Tacoma. So that was the first year I was ordained. So you can take note of that, look it up online. We are going through uh, the General Assembly. We're working our way up the various levels of the church government, from the local church in its session to the regional church in its presbytery, and now to the General Assembly, which would be the National Assembly. It could also be transnational or international, especially given we do have some churches and works in Canada, uh, insofar as we have foreign missions as well. You know, it brings in more than just our country. And by the way, that's an interesting point. Uh, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church doesn't have the word America in its name. Uh, Presbyterian Church, out of which the OPC came, did. It was the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. Okay? Actually, the Northern Church was the PCUSA, and then the Southern Church was the PCUS, coming from the Civil War. And then, anyway, they went through all kinds of acronyms. But it's typically had the word America in its name. The OPC does not. Um, and while I don't think that that was purposeful, I think it does uh, reflect something unique about our identity. We're not trying to be an American church. We're trying to be a Presbyterian church, one that's orthodox, uh, not confined by uh, international or national borders. All right, so we've gone through the different standing committees. Remember, there's a difference between a committee and a commission. A committee is one that has a delegated task given to it, and then that committee makes recommendations to the whole body, and then the whole body votes on them. A commission is different. A commission is delegated authority to act on behalf of the body, the assembly. Right? So, for example, I mentioned in the PCA, uh, our sister denomination, <coughs> I, th I don't think I'm mistaken about this, <coughs> they have a standing judicial commission. So uh, judicial cases are tried by commission. In other words, there's a group of, I don't, can't remember exact number, it's like 15, 16, 17, 18 men, maybe more than that, and they hear the case and it's tried before them. So the, they're a representative court that acts on behalf of the assembly. It's not that way in the OPC. If there's a trial, the whole body votes on it. We do have an appeals and complaints committee that hears the case with an advisory committee of representative pastors and elders from the body. They hear the case and they may make recommendations one way or the other, or they may speak to it. Sometimes they don't. I think sometimes they're just silent. But it's the body itself, the General Assembly, the ministers and the elders who vote on it. 
In the OPC, we have a delegated assembly, which means that not every minister or elder can come. They have to be appointed by their presbytery, and that's a delegated assembly of 155 members. Okay, that's the number. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's right. So I've been going through the various committees that handle this. So appeals and complaints, which deals with judicial cases, charges of sin, and also complaints, which are administrative. So we distinguish between um, judicial discipline, which deals with the prevention and correction of offenses. That's a judicial matter. And then there's administrative discipline, which has to do with order and process. And those are two distinct things. If you have a concern about sin and its prevention and its correction, and you're talking about a serious sin that warrants a trial, because not all sin warrants a trial. It's not the only tool in our toolbox to deal with sin. Okay? But if it's serious enough to warrant a trial, that's a judicial discipline. Now, if you feel that the church or the leadership has erred in process, it didn't follow the right order, then you deal with that through a complaint. We call that administrative discipline. It's very important not to mix the two. If you do and try to bring charges of sin in a complaint, you know what will happen? What's that? It'll get kicked back. It'll get kicked back. The, the presbytery, the session will say, look, huh, we're ruling this out of order. And when something's ruled out of order, that doesn't mean just shut up and don't say anything anymore because we don't like you. I mean, I guess you could try to do that. But what it means is this is not in the right order. Okay? You can't just throw out there whatever charges or complaints you want in a disorderly fashion. It has to follow the right order. Now, why is that important? Why is it important to follow the right order? What can happen if you don't? Yeah, it becomes a free-for-all, right? And, and even if you're right about the issue that you're raising, if you do that in a disorderly manner, you will likely end up creating bigger problems than the one you identified that you're trying to have corrected. So we need to be very wise and shrewd. Shrewd as a serpent, innocent as a dove. We need to understand that uh, in the church, it's a, it's a delicate thing. The church exists, of course, on the formal level in terms of rules and government. But on the organic level, it's characterized by love, friendship, peace, stability. And when negative emotions enter into the picture and suddenly maybe we're intimidated or we're scared or we're hurt, what happens to the body and its fellowship? It can become very disrupted, right, to the point where it's a drag on everybody and we're not growing. Okay? And so this is especially the case with charges of, of sin and maladministration. Uh, it raises suspicion in people's minds. They start to doubt uh, the character of other people. And it's especially the case if this has to do with a leader in the church, because, of course, if there's suspicion about their character, they're rendered ineffective in their work, which is, of course, why we see the weaponization. That's kind of a buzzword nowadays, but I'll use it. The weaponization of justice. Why do people do that? Why do people bring charges against public figures even when they know it's not going to work? Yeah. Yeah. So number one, you can make them look bad. It's a good. It's great to have a headline against your enemy that oh, they're under investigation. Oh, they're oh, that's so terrible. Oh, they must be a bad guy, right? And then of course, intimidating the person. Uh, it's expensive and it's extremely stressful to be in a legal process. That's true in the civil courts. It's also true in the church courts. Uh, when a charge of sin is brought against somebody, um, that is going to have a detrimental effect on the person. 
So we need to make sure that the charges, if is a serious one, that warrants a trial, because if you have a trial, that has an effect, right? In other words, it's like, it's like a patient who has a medical problem. One of the first things you have to determine is, are they healthy enough to survive the surgery? And if they're not, you don't do the surgery, right? So is the situation bad enough that it warrants formal process, okay? So that's an important principle that does not come naturally to us as sinners. Our natural process is, I see something wrong, I'm going to criticize it, and I'm going to condemn it. I'm going to judge it, right? My natural process is, I feel hurt, I want to hurt that person back. And the tools of church discipline can be abused and misused, even unintentionally, when we're not fully aware of where our heart is at, and when we're, not, when we're thinking mainly about ourselves and not about the whole church. Okay? So you have rights to file complaints. You have rights to appeal judicial decisions if, <coughs> and to file charges. But you got to count the cost first. got to think outside yourself. you got to think of the whole church and how is this going to affect the whole body. Okay? And sometimes, yeah, a situation is so serious that it's got to be dealt with and we got to bite the bullet. Right? You got to go through the fire. It's going to burn you, but it's the only way we can be purified. Okay? So I'm not trying to discourage anybody if they have a concern. I'm just saying we have to be wise about that. Right? We have to be wise about that. And I think pastorally, too, especially in marriage situations, uh, there's church discipline uh, cases that come up with this, but we also have to counter and think about this. Okay, it's bad. Maybe it needs church discipline, but what about the family? Are they in a position to be able to handle emotionally right now all this being put out in public? Right? You have to think through that. Now, is that your only thing you're thinking about? No. <laughs> all right? At the end of the day, you have the tools of discipline that you have to use. But you have to be wise and think about how this is going to affect people. Okay? Church discipline is medicine, but it comes in a shot. And the shots hurt. And we have to think about the people who are getting poked. Um, and the people affected by the poke when we do it. All right, so more wisdom about appeals and complaints. There's also Christian education. We talked about that. They deal with publishing books that are important for the life and history of the OPC. They run the Ministerial Training Institute um, that teaches a number of classes to help ministers get some remedial education. Right. <clears throat> we discussed, I think, also um, home missions and foreign missions. Right. We discussed the Committee on Coordination, which assists uh, those committees in their work. And so let's see, picking up about where we left off. Um, sorry, just one second here. <coughs> I got to bring up the ecumenicity and interchurch relations. We talk, talked about arrangements. Committee on Arrangements basically helps plan the meeting, where they're going to be, the facilities, and all those things. Okay, okay. the next one that we need to talk about is chaplains and military personnel. Did we talk about that one? I don't think we did. Okay, by the way, if you want to follow along kind of with what I'm working off of, there's a document called the Standing Rules of the General Assembly, and you can find that online, OPC Standing Rules General Assembly, uh, but I'll walk you through it. So we have a committee that deals with chaplains and other military personnel. Now, in the U.S. military, 
there is an aspect that's called the chaplaincy. And essentially, it's the ministerial wing of the U.S. military. It's kind of an odd thing because they are military officers, but uh, if they're Presbyterian, they're also ordained by the church for that service. Now, some people in the past have kind of objected to this, like, you know, this kind of mixes church and state. You know, well, no, what it recognizes is that uh, the military uh, is an entity, and uh, the people in the military end up being at large military bases with their own communities, with their own towns, with their own cities. They end up on, out at sea on ships for months at a time. They basically have their dwelling, as it were, in a place that's floating throughout the sea. So there's a spiritual need among military members uh, such that they need counsel, oversight, instruction, and teaching. Right? And so military chaplains will uh, conduct worship services. They offer, offer counseling and other things. Now, it's a hairy situation right now. Um, as the, at least the current administration has begun to kind of crack down a little bit more on things uh, in, in terms of the military. I'm sure you've heard a lot about that in the news. Uh, I don't want to get into all the details of that uh, today. Uh, but it does seem like it's becoming more difficult. <laughs> at least it will be getting more difficult to be an Orthodox Christian minister, Protestant minister uh, in the military. Um, the wonderful thing is that even in those situations, I still know and hear stories from the chaplaincies that basically the way it works, there's a command structure in the military. So you'll end up sometimes with a good guy who's head over the chaplains in a certain area. And if there's a good guy there, you end up having very good things happen, right? If there's a bad guy there, then things can be a little more difficult, right? So the chaplains I know have kind of been able to navigate and move around those kinds of difficulties. And God works in his wonderful ways um, to bring the right people in the right places. But nevertheless, we recognize that chaplaincy as a legitimate <coughs> calling, as a legitimate way in which a minister uh, may fulfill uh, his duties. So we have the, the chapel, <coughs> chaplaincy ministries. Okay. All right, the next committee here is the Committee for the Historian. And uh, the current historian is a man named John uh, Meather. I can't remember if it's E-U or U-E. John Meather. He wrote a very helpful and good book on uh, Cornelius Van Til, a biography, which I highly recommend to you all if you want to learn a little bit about Cornelius Van Til, who he was, and why he's important in the life of the church. Cornelius Van Til was a kind of a founding member, professor of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He taught systematic theology and apologetics. And so he's kind of the, one of the most well-known modern proponents of what we call presuppositional apologetics. We could talk more about that, but <clears throat> I don't want to get too far, far afield. He also wrote a book with a man named D.G. Hart, Daryl Hart, but he goes by his initials, D.G. Hart. And it's, it's basically a history uh, of the OPC. Okay, prior to John Meather, a man named Charles Dennison served as the historian. Charles Dennison is the brother of Jim Dennison, who uh, taught here at a seminary uh, for 10, 15 years, uh, and the brother of Bill Dennison, who's the pastor over in Kent. He died in around the year 2000, 1999, but he served as a historian for many years. And he has a number of lectures, audio lectures, that are just really tremendous 
on the history of the OPC, and he really emphasized what he called its pilgrim or heavenly identity. Um, I think a lot of his work was published under the title History for a Pilgrim People. Um, And I think the OPC published that. And so that's another, yeah, History for Pilgrim People. Um, Some of that is available in audio form. You can listen to. Just the other day, I was looking this up to try to find it. But these are very important uh, resources for you as members. So I would highly commend that you get D.G. Hart and Meather's History of the OPC and that you also get uh, Charles Denison's History for Pilgrim People. Uh, They're they're very well written. They're very edifying. I think very insightful uh, on these on this subject. By the way, has anybody read either of these books? Oh, okay, yeah, you need to read them. You're all, it's all required now. I just made it required. Okay. <laughs> What's that? No copies in your library. I don't know if I have any extra copies. I might have a copy of. Oh no, no. We should get some. Um, but anyway, I think uh, some of them are available digitally. So anyway, the historian is responsible for just preserving the historical records of the denomination. I think we now have an archive with letters and different documents. Of course, all the minutes of the OPC General Assembly are available. They've been digitized, which is very interesting and helpful, especially because uh, the OPC dealt with so much uh, uh, theological controversy. You can kind of read some important stuff on uh, different theological controversies in the 20th century. Another thing the committee has... The historian has done was they digitized uh, a magazine that I've mentioned before called the Presbyterian Guardian. This was the magazine that we had before New Horizons <coughs> came. I love the Presbyterian Guardian. It's just a wonderful, uh, wonderful work. Uh, I, I've already said my love for it and how I wish we had something like that today. Um, Many of the articles in uh, that magazine became books that are staples of Christian teaching. Uh, again, it just, it's a little bit of work to go through the digitized copies and find what you're looking for. But if you're a history buff or you want a chance just to read some old stuff or look some stuff up, you can search it. You can find a bunch of old articles, and it's just really, really good stuff. So that's Committee on the Historian. Um, they publish books, but yeah, uh, the OPC, I think, is through the work of the historian, has become very cognizant of its history and uh, how that shapes and informs, I think, the identity of the church today. So we have the historian who does that uh, important work. All right, so that's pretty much the standing committees. Standing committees are those that remain. They continue. They don't dissolve, right? We also have uh, what are called special committees. And these special committees can be of various kinds. But one of the most significant kinds of special committees are what we call study committees. Now, the OPC is famous, or maybe infamous, for its study committees. And if you type online, OPC study committees, (coughs) we have posted on the web most of Uh, the important study committee reports that the OPC General Assembly has published. Now, why erect a study committee? Well, if there is a controverted issue, 
right? Or something that the General Assembly feels that the church directly as an entity needs to address, what we can do is commit the issue to a group of men for study, right? It's a committee, so they're not a judicial commission. They're not trying a judicial case. They're studying and making recommendations and issuing a report looking at an important issue, okay? And in the history of the OPC, we've had uh, study committees on all kinds of subjects. Uh, let me just highlight a few, okay? <coughs> Excuse me. I had my list here, but where to go? Uh, that's not it, sorry. Give me one second here. General Assembly. That's not it. Well, can't find it. For example, 20 years ago or so, we had a study committee to study the length of the days of creation. Okay. Now, why have that? Well, because that's an issue with which there's disagreement on, right? I think that in the OPC, the most common view is the seven-day uh, solar, not seven, I always do that. It's not seven days of creation, six days, right? Six day, the solar view, right, which is, you know, 24 hours or 24.23 or 24 point whatever hours it would be. So it's an ordinary solar day, right? Then you had the framework view proposed by Meredith Klein, who essentially views, uh, he would argue that, yes, creation is a historical event, right, but the Genesis 1 essentially presents a literary framework, and the days of creation, as they're presented there, are not there to tell us how long creation took to produce. It's there as a framework through which we can interpret um, the theology of it. Now, understand that you can acknowledge that there's a theological framework in Genesis 1 and not draw from that conclusion that it tells us nothing about the length of days or that they're consecutive, right? In fact, it makes sense that if God is a God of reason and order and wisdom, that we would see in the way he created something that communicates to us what creation is, right? So my point here is that observing literary patterns in Genesis 1 isn't itself proof or not proof of your position on the length of days, right? Then there's also a day-age view, and that basically sees the days of creation uh, as consecutive, but not really 24-hour days, but long periods of time. This view was very common uh, in the early days of the OPC. I would say that most of the founding members uh, seem to have adopted this view uh, under the influence of some of the old Princeton theologians. And then uh, finally, there's another uh, view called the analogical day view. And uh, it just argues for the uniqueness of... Um, what was happening during the creation days, and so um, essentially says, well, it's not a literary framework, but we can't really say there are six solar days for various reasons, but it's something analogous to that. So anyway, nowadays I think that you'll probably find most people taking this view in the OPC, okay? But the study committee report basically said, all right, well, what do we do with all these views? And essentially it, 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 the recommendation it made was that the main issue here is not the length of the days per se. 
The issue is the implications of that on all these other doctrinal issues. And so essentially what they said was, you know, historical creation, historicity of creation, also the special creation of Adam and Eve in the image of God, no non-human ancestors. Uh, down the list they went. They came up with a list of a number of things. Okay? Now, is that the official position of the denomination? No, it's not. Study committees are not the official position of the denomination. What they are is a snapshot of what uh, the men appointed to the study committee thought after studying it carefully and then presenting it to the denomination. Typically, what the denomination does is it commends the report for study. Right? Sometimes study committee reports look at issues and say, yeah, that's not kosher, that's not good. Right? That essentially uh, doesn't have no force, right? but it's not something that has the effect of adding to the standards. Right? There's a process, if you want to modify or add to the confession, there's a process that we have to go through. So essentially, the study committee report is a weighty thing. Its conclusions are weighty. But by themselves, they don't have the force of a judicial decision, right? Now, there have been times when a study committee report issues a recommendation where it says, we find this view to be contrary to a scripture and our standards. And number two, we recommend that we start disciplining ministers that don't hold this view. Okay, you, you could do that, right? But typically, the, our practice normally is we come up with a report, we present it to the body, and then it's commended for study, and then the church does with it what it feels it needs to do. So we need to be very careful in understanding what a study committee is. It's not to give us an official position of the denomination. It's to study a matter and give recommendations. Okay? That doesn't make them empty and void because it's a study committee erected by the highest body of the church, right? But it's not the same as a judicial, system, a judicial decision about a minister. Okay? Any questions about that issue, yeah. So could the opinion of the study committee conflict with the General Assembly? Yeah, yeah, uh, I think uh, there was one time where, oh, I can't remember now. Well, there's also minority and majority reports. Like I remember on the issue of pedo communion, the majority report came out against it, but the minority report said, no, there's weighty arguments to have infant children come to the table, right? And uh, they submitted both reports and commended it for study. Um, the position of the denomination in terms of our standards is that uh, you have to make a profession of faith, right? You have to be up such years to do it. Uh, but the minister was simply honestly expressing his conviction uh, based on his study of what that was. So it, it's a delicate balance, but um, if you're a minister in the OPC, right, you have to abide by its policies as stated in the standards. So even though that minister might say, I think pedo-communion is okay, in his practice as a minister, he has to follow what the church would have him do. He has to submit his private judgment to the public judgment of the church. At the same time, we don't want ministers afraid of, in their study, of declaring what their mind is before God in their conscience. So it's rare for anybody to like be disciplined for something they write in a study committee report. So yeah. You, so if, if, if a minister is, is, does a study and he <coughs> submits it, it's a minority report, he's convinced of something before God that's inconsistent with um, <coughs> OPC standards, if he teaches that from the pulpit, what happens? Well, it depends. I mean, that would be up to a session and then the presbytery and then the general assembly. 
So here, here we get into a sticky situation, right? Because in the study committee report, we're not talking about the man. We're talking about the doctrine, right? And so this is, I probably should have laid this out more, more clearly. I'm kind of mixing you up because I'm getting into specifics about study committees before um, I lay out the principles, right? So there's two ways to deal with sin and, and particularly doctrinal error, okay? One is through a trial, and in that, you're dealing with the man and his views as he holds them. Just the fact that he thinks it. You're dealing with that man and his views, the way he holds them and articulates them, and the way he does that in the course of a trial, he might back off some statements. He might change his mind, Right? So, that's dealing with the man and his views. Okay, in the study committee, and this is judicial, right? There's strict rules over what, how you can prosecute it. Okay? The other way to deal with doctrinal problems is through a study committee. Right? And that just deals with the doctrine. So, in this, you're dealing with statements right? in context, as written. You're dealing with formulations. You're dealing with theological systems. Now, to be sure, if there are men that have articulated themselves in the way that comes under review by a study committee, does that bear some weight on how you would deal with them judicially? Oh, yeah, it does. But in this arena, we are just dealing with the doctrine, not the man. And so it's, it's not uncommon in a study committee report to say things like, these kinds of formulations are inconsistent with the language of our standards. But then, you know, a minister might say, okay, I, I get that, I see that, but, you know, that, the, the statements that I, I said are kind of being lifted out of context, and there's other things that I've said or maybe I've modified my views, okay? So that would take place in the trial, right, for him to sort all that out. Now, there are some who don't like study committees at all. They would rather us just deal with doctrinal error judicially. And I get why, right? Because it's very easy to weaponize things, even study committees, right? Stack the deck, get men on the committee that are going to say what you want, get the conclusions you want, and then you can use that study committee to intimidate people and say, ah, look, the OPC study committee said this is wrong, so you can't hold to it, right? And that bypasses the judicial process, right? But it's well established in the history of the Reformed and Presbyterian churches that there's two ways we deal with these things. Okay, we can make statements, right? We can we have our confession of faith, right, which is authoritative in the sense that it, under Scripture, it's that which we've all agreed upon is a system of doctrine contained in the Scriptures. Okay, but <laughs> when we address doctrinal matters in a study committee, uh, we're dealing with the statements and the theological formulations themselves, not the man. Just curious. So if somebody was was uh, just, maybe this is even in order to know what would happen, but if someone was teaching day-age theology and saying that uh, that the six-day younger view was wrong, it, would that just you just would that just have to go to trial to see what would happen with that? Uh, there's there, is there a, there's not a clear uh, that 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 would not go to trial. Would go to trial. Okay. It would not go to trial merely based on the length of the creation days, sure. and that's not because of what the co uh, study committee said. It's just. I don't think we've ever had a trial over, over, over that. Um, again, on the length of the days, the 
position of the OPC, well, not the position of the OPC, but I mean de facto, right? The kind of practice that it has is it doesn't see the exact length of the days as determinative for the man's orthodoxy. It's another set of um, issues uh, that are closely related to that that are absolutely non-negotiable. Okay? And so um, I'll just, since I brought this one up, I'll just list... Uh, yeah, so creation ex nihilo, out of nothing, the federal headship of Adam, the covenant of works, the doctrine of the Sabbath, the sufficiency and perspicuity of scripture, the historicity of the creation account, and uh, not holding to pre-animal ancestors of Adam. If a man held to pre-animal ancestors of Adam, you'd have trouble. I think in general, if a man held to uh, a view that kind of blew wide open how old the earth was, he'd get a ton of questions about everything else. So you see, there's, there, there's a close relationship here, right, between these issues. So, you know, if a man held to a literal six-day, 24-hour solar day view, uh, most would just say, ah, oh, well, and he's not an evolutionist, right? Because there's not enough time <laughs> for between days five and six, and, uh, and within day six even, um, for that to happen. So there'd be no question, right? But if a man held to another view... Uh, in terms of the length of the days, he'd immediately get some questions about his views on evolution and all these other questions. Okay. All right, well, it's not just the six days of creation. Uh, we've had very um, helpful <coughs> study committee reports on the idea of the knowledge of God. <coughs> we've had OPC committee reports on the doctrine of justification. Recently, we had one on covenant theology on the subject of republication, and I was an unfortunate member of that one, that committee. Extremely stressful time in my life, and at first I thought, wow, what a privilege to serve on a study committee. And then after I got on there for about a month, I said, dear God, take this cup from me. I don't ever want to say anything about republication ever again in my life. So, uh, but anyway, go online. You can look at the study committee reports. Again, they're not the official position, dogma of the denomination, but they're helpful snap, snapshots. And given that they typically have as members some of the best minds of the church, when the church asks them to deal with an issue, they put their full energy into it, and they usually come up with very, very good work. Okay? So those are study committees. Any other questions about that? Yeah. What is what is republication? Yeah, well, as simply as you can, I can state it. It's the idea. <clears throat> you can just go read the reports then. It's only like 140 pages with multiple interpretations of a simple theologian, Meredith Klein. I mean, you can sort all that out. Yeah, republication, um, it, it goes by various different views. But in the modern context, what it basically says is in the garden, Adam was in a covenant of works. I abbreviate that cow just because it's kind of funny, you know. Covenant of works with Adam, right? And that operated on a principle of merit, okay? Small m, not big M, okay? It's merit through God's condescension, not that it can strictly earn anything, right? But he was under a covenant of works in which God promised him eternal life on the basis of perfect personal obedience. Well, then after the fall, that ended, right? And we entered into what we call the covenant of grace, cog, okay? And in that covenant, uh, God requires faith and promises eternal life, right? And that covenant uh, was instituted immediately after the fall, and then, of course, becomes 
emblematic in Abraham. Okay, so you have Adam pre-fall, covenant of works. And what uh, republication people would say is there's a works principle here. Right? <clears throat> and what they argue is that through the patriarchal period, we have this covenant of grace with faith. Right? But during the time of Moses and the law, what happens is the works principle is superimposed on top of this covenant of, of grace. So the covenant of grace continues. Salvation is still by grace through faith. But there's a works principle. If you could think of it this way, it's kind of superimposed in the life of Israel, but it's limited in its application. It's limited to their temporal and typological life in the land. <coughs> okay, here's where it gets a little confusing in terms of how it works out. And personally, I think it's confusing because there's a little bit of a contradiction in what they're saying. Uh, others would say it's confusing because I'm not... Well, how do I, how do I phrase this? That I, if I had a sharper insight into what they were saying, it wouldn't be confusing. So other problems with me... Or is the problem with the formulation, right? I think the problems with the formulation, they would say the problems with me. Okay. I've already shown my cards here, right? Well, what they would say is that even though Israel is are sinners, right, and can't perfectly obey God, right, can't do that anymore. So it's not like a total repetition of the original covenant works. Can't do perfect obedience anymore. But Israel on the national level corporately, to the degree that they obey God, they deserve to stay in the land. And to the degree they disobey God, they deserve to be thrown out. So not on the individual level of salvation, but on the national corporate level, as they are a type <coughs> of heavenly realities, they operate on this works principle. So. To put it as simply as I can, republicanists say that this original arrangement with Adam is reimposed under Moses, but limited to their national life with land blessings. Now you might say, why in the world would you do that? Right? The reason they think it's important is because they think that this illustrates what Jesus had to do to save us. He had to obey and earn salvation for our sakes. So Israel becomes a type of Christ, limited, right? Not fully his, not fully him. It's not like a full-blown works principle as under Adam. So, you know, think capital W. It's a small w works principle. Okay, and if you dig into the weeds, what they'll say is that Israel's imperfect, sincere obedience was basically constituted by God as the meritorious ground for blessing. And that's different than the covenant of grace in which there's no merit at all. Is that clear to everybody? All right, that's as simple as I can, I can put it. My, my problem with this on multiple levels, just basically, it doesn't fit the Bible. The Bible presents the land blessings of, of Canaan as that which God gives to bless faith. That's what the Mosaic Covenant is about. It's about faith. It's about trusting in the Lord. Right? And to the degree that they trust him and worship him faithfully, 
He blesses them. Why? Because they earn it? No, because he's trying to show, as a father would show to his children, that he's pleased with their faith and their loyalty and their love. So it's a gift of grace, right? Now, not just when they're imperfect or sin a little bit, but when they abandon God and turn to other gods, what happens? They get kicked out of the land. Why? Because they failed to earn the reward? No, because they rejected God, abandoned him, and walked in unbelief. So rather than saying that this arrangement is something different than what we experience today, what we're seeing is that, no, in its essence and core, this is reflecting the life of faith. Now, people would object to me and say, well, wait a minute. Is there no difference then between Israel and us? No, yes, there's a big difference, right? In particular, I do think that Israel had a national identity in which that blessedness that God promises reward would be expressed nationally in their crops, in their peace, in their military <coughs> victories and other things. Well, that nation has passed away. So the form in which those blessings come, not the same, right? We're not a country. We need to be very careful in trying to tie our sense of being under God's blessedness to the temporal prosperity of the nation that we're in. That, that connection is not there anymore because it's been fulfilled in Christ. So I agree with that 100%. And if we do that, we end up in the era of what's called theonomy, which essentially says that our goal as the church is to restore a Christian government you know, everywhere. Right? So I think that, to be as charitable as I can, I think the republication people, what they want to do is make sure we understand that Jesus had to come fulfill the law for us. Okay, they're, they're worried about legalism, right? So they want to get these legal elements out of the picture. And I say, okay, I share your concern with legalism, but I'm also concerned about antinomianism. And this is where the problems come in. Because, of course, what's the moral law? <clears throat> Ten Commandments. All right. If you hold the republication and you say that there's a works principle embedded in the Mosaic Covenant, in terms of blessing, promised blessing, you run into some issues with the Ten Commandments. Because what is the Ten Commandments? It's not just uh, commandments, it also includes promises, doesn't it? Promises of blessing. Promises of blessing in the land. And where does it contain that? Which commandment contains that? Fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother, so that what? Okay, so there's blessedness in the land. And of course, who cites that very promise and repeats it to the New Testament church? Paul. All right, so in other words, you're telling me that embedded in the Ten Commandments, or not in the Ten Commandments, embedded in the Mosaic Covenant, on the national level of blessedness is a works principle that's merit and not grace. And there it is in the Ten Commandments, and there it is repeated by Paul. How can that be? Is Paul reimposing a works principle for the New Testament church? Well, they would argue no, and I'm grateful for that, right? They're not arguing that. But what, I'm, what I would say is, okay, good, you see that that's a problem, but why, right? It seems to me that if there is a works principle of merit embedded in the Mosaic <coughs> Covenant, that that would logically follow. Now, I think it logically follows. Does that mean it follows in everyone who argues for a republication view? No, it doesn't. And why is that? Well, because guess what? Sometimes we might be off in our thinking, but the implications don't work themselves out fully, do they? 
we can sometimes have a little bit of confusion in our minds, but also realize, oh, well, I don't want to reject the Ten Commandments, right? <clears throat> so we have to balance these things. And my takeaway from republication, and I think the takeaway of the study committee report, was essentially that there's some confusing views out there. Some of them don't seem to be consistent with the standards. And when worked out consistently, they can lead to some pretty significant problems in Reformed theology. Right? Um, to this point, I had been understanding that Republicans <coughs> was the basic difference, the basic theological framework difference between Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists. Are there Presbyterians who, are, who believe in Republication? Oh, yeah. Okay. For sure. Now, the Reformed Baptists hold to a kind of Republication view. It's a little bit different, um, but they do so because... They don't. They want to uh, minimize the force of circumcision for infants in the Old Testament. That's a key argument for infant baptism. Just as infants were circumcised in the Old Testament, so they're baptized in the New Testament. Well, what a lot of what a lot of Baptists do is they make not just the Mosaic Covenant, but the Abrahamic Covenant in one key way, just an earthly covenant that's legal. And so you see that just erases. And sets aside that whole argument. So I guess I'm just, I'm not trying to proliferate our, this particular issue. Yeah. I'm curious now, if you're a Presbyterian and a republicationist, how do you, what do you do with infant baptism and how do you, do you just lose that argument? No, I mean, they would say that there's this lower level of the covenant of grace that's kind of at the bottom level of it. So they would just say, on that level, we find that continuity with that. They have another level in which the types operate. Yeah, so again, um, a number of Republicans got quite upset at me when uh, I was arguing for some of these things. And they'd say, well, if you think that that view isn't confessional, then that means you're going to kick me out of the church. I said, well, no. <laughs> That's not, we're not dealing with a judicial case, right? We're not dealing with the man. We're dealing with the doctrine. Okay? And the reality is that, yeah, you know, you've got to make sure your views and your formulations line up with the standards. But here's the deal. I sound like a politician. Here's the deal, right? But here's the bottom line, is that when we're dealing with a view of man, we have to look at that view in the context of everything he believes and holds, right? So let's say, for example, a guy holds to republication. Well, I might start asking him some questions, say he was being examined. I'd ask him, is the Ten Commandments the moral law, right? I would ask him, did Israel merit anything by their obedience? I would ask him those questions. And if he gave me satisfactory answers to all those questions, but then said, I still think there's some kind of works principle in the Old Testament, but I don't really know exactly how to formulate it. I'd probably say, okay, well, you should probably look into that view a little bit more, but everything you're telling me here, as long as you hold to all these other positions, I'm just going to chalk it up to a little bit of confusion in your mind about the Mosaic Covenant. Okay? However, if you say there's a works principle under the Mosaic Covenant and and I ask you, did Israel merit anything? And they say, yeah. I said, was that like real merit, or just are you using that term loosely? No, it was real merit. Uh, are the Ten Commandments the moral law? No, the Ten Commandments aren't the moral law. I'm going to go, that's not going to fly, right? So we have to look at the view in the context of the, the rest of his, his doctrine, okay? So when you're evaluating the man, you're evaluating his view in the context of how he holds it and how he articulates it. When you're looking at the doctrine, you're looking at the particular formulations. Sometimes, yeah, lift it out of the broader context, and you're just evaluating those statements, whether they're true or false. 
So I think that allows us to recognize that, yeah, there might be some views out there that people articulate that maybe aren't as formulated as they should be. I do think myself that ministers need to not only, uh, in a muffled way, approximate the right answers, but they should be clear in what they say and what they believe. So I think that's another point. Um, But um, nevertheless, I think when you're dealing with the man, that's the approach you have, right? Um, especially when passions over these kinds of issues are very high. Any other questions about republication? I said I never wanted to say anything about republication again in my life, and now you're making me talk about it again. <laughs> no, I say that because I just I want to put my brothers who hold this view at ease. I do think there have been some men that have gone too far with this and have clearly crossed lines. But that doesn't mean um, all of them have. I would say that I do think that when you're confused in a certain area of doctrine, I don't want to say it's inevitable, but it's likely that it's gonna, cards are going to fall down the line, so be vigilant, vigilant and be careful. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to go around with an axe and just be indiscriminately chopping heads off. I don't think that serves the church well. So we have to pursue its purity, uh, but also its peace. And I think uh, after all was said and done, I was uh, happy and content with what uh, the study committee <coughs> report said on this subject. Any other questions? Okay, so that's the General Assembly. Study committee reports, all its committees. The next thing on the list is congregational meetings. As you can see, we're shifting gears here, right? I I tried to do a little research on congregational meetings when they started their history. I couldn't really find anything on it. So if anybody wants to do like a research paper on the history of congregational meetings in the Presbyterian Church, that would be very, very interesting. Okay. So, um, oh, that's, sorry, I got to go. I got to bring up the Book of Order again. I went to the study committee on creation. There it is. Book of Church Order, former government, congregational meetings. All right, so in addition to the judicatories of the church meeting, the session, the presbytery, the general assembly, we now return back here to the congregation itself and what it can do as a body. Now remember, the session and the elders are elected by the congregation. The special office flows out of the general office. It doesn't replace it. Okay, once the elders are elected to be on the session, they are then the governing body of the church, uh, but that doesn't mean the congregation as a whole in its general awesome office, general awesome, <laughs> you're awesome, you're all awesome. The general office then goes away. No, it remains. And so if we're thinking of the theological foundations for why we have congregational meetings, it's the fact that there is a general office of believer. Okay, And the powers and authorities of that general office in a way get entrusted to the special officers but the general office does not go away. And so there are meetings that take place of the congregation. Now, the first thing it says here about the congregational meeting is that they're called by the session. So, again, the fact that the session is the directive or the governing body, the ruling body of the church, even though the congregation can meet, it's still called by the session. They're the ones uh, directing the ship, as it were. Okay? Our church order requires that at least once a year <coughs> there be a stated meeting 
Okay, presbyteries meet at different intervals. Some meet twice a year, some meet three times a year. I don't know if any meet four times a year. Presbyterian Northwest meets twice a year, stated meetings. We can also have special meetings, okay? But once a year, we have a stated meeting. And at that meeting, uh, we've typically had election of officers <coughs> as terms expire because we have term eldership here. And that's also the approval of the church budget. Now, why are those things staples of annual congregational meetings? Well, because both of them involve things that require, in the nature of the case, congregational approval, right? The elders have oversight of the church finances, but they do so for the people who are giving the money, right? So you want approval from the congregation for the expenditures. In fact, in the bylaws um, of our church, any uh, expenditure... Is it over 20000 I think it's over $20,000 requires congregational approval. Right? So the church budget, because the people are giving the money, they have to approve the church budget. And, of course, the election of officers, that takes place by the congregation as well. Now, what can you include in a congregational meeting? Well, the book of church order says, A stated meeting shall be held at least once annually to consider the affairs of the congregation. So it's pretty broad. Right, And we've had different uh, things happen. Sometimes we'll have a report of a building committee. Um, at a special meeting, uh, we may uh, you know, consider um, some ministry opportunity uh, that we're pursuing or some other decision. We may give some kind of report on uh, the state of the church. That's something that um, will happen. Uh, but n nevertheless, it's fairly broad. Okay? It just simply says, give a meeting uh, to consider the affairs of the congregation. Right. Now, the session can call the meeting themselves, and it says that uh, other meetings can be called when the session deems it to be for the best interest of the congregation, or when requested in writing to do so by one-fourth of the communicant members of the congregation in good standing and regular standing. So, uh, the session can call a meeting, or 25% of the communicant members can write to the session and say, we want to call a meeting. Right. That's important because it's a measure of a check and balance on a session. Say you have a rogue session. <laughs> not here, I hope not, right? But say you have a rogue session that is steering the church in a bad direction. Say that uh, the leadership of the church has become theologically liberal and is not holding their minister accountable, right? The congregation has recourse uh, to do that. I would say that that's um, rare, uh, but it can happen, and it does happen. Uh, I would say, too, that the ordinary way, if there's like a judicial issue, uh, that be not be handled through a congregational meeting like that. It would be handled through a charge. And if there's administrative discipline, that would be handled through a complaint. Right. So we always have to figure out there's these ways the church can operate. We have to decide, okay, what's the appropriate avenue here? Right. So if you have a charge of sin that you're bringing against an elder, you're not going to bring that up at a congregational meeting. Right. You're going to bring it up in a trial. You're going to ask for, you're going to bring a charge and have a trial. And that's going to go the right, the right place. So for those things which wouldn't be dealing with a charge of sin or administrative malpractice, say there was an issue uh, that the church thought needed to be dealt with and discussed at a congregational meeting, they can petition the session to do so, but then it would be the session that calls the meeting at the request of uh, the members. All right, we're out of time, uh, but that's congregational meetings. We'll pick up where we left off uh, next week. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, this time that we had to consider this the work of your church. Again, we pray for our General Assembly. 
your blessing upon all its works that it may lead and encourage the church well. And bless us now as we prepare to worship, sing your praise, and hear your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.